Well, good morning. I was going to ask Josh to give the announcements instead of Nick, but, but Josh was busy doing Sunday school, and Nick was the only one around, so I gave it to Nick, and you know, kid gets engaged, and all of a sudden he's got jokes. <laughs> he thinks because he's going out of town, he can just say whatever he wants. Well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> bring it in and get serious. Uh, one of the things that we want to talk about uh, this morning is as we've been going through this study of the return from captivity, we're going to, Lord willing, continue in Nehemiah this morning. And what I want to present to you, the reason for part of this is to understand how everything breaks out historically and how God responds to the people, how the people respond to God. And there's a few things that we notice when we go through this chronologically. Uh, the first thing we notice is that no work of God begins without first there being repentance from the people. Uh, repentance is a necessary thing, repentance from sin and to God. There's this idea of getting back to the things that they know to be true. No work of God begins without repentance. The next thing we see is that no work of God uh, goes anywhere without prayer. Uh, that prayer is really the, the, the labor that we've been entrusted with. And we pray and we wait for an open door, which God gives, and then we wait for God's provision. So these are things that we see historically uh, in how God acts and how God works with his people. Um, so if we think we're going to go about it a different way, history has shown us that it's not going to be successful. Um, so this is the reason why going through some of these things. One of the problems with the chronology in the Old Testament is it makes it very difficult to see that in effect because it kind of moves around so much. And so you have these uh, certain aspects that we're going to look at today. One of the things I want to use to, to kind of be an example of this, why it's important, um, the first one is going to be in Lamentations. Uh, you don't really have to turn there. I'm just going to read it and make a comment. Uh, in Lamentations 3, uh, 22 to 23, we all know this. Uh, hymns have been written about this. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Uh, it's a verse that we, we love, we cling to. Um, but it has much more impact when you realize that Jeremiah was writing this as the city of Jerusalem was being destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. All of a sudden, it's not like he's just writing this in grand old times and, oh, you know, everything is great. He's writing this in the time of God's judgment upon his people. And that has a certain impact to it when you realize that and you look at this verse differently and you look at God differently. The fact that he is going to be faithful even in judgment and we praise God for that because it means he's willing to judge his son in our place. He's willing for that judgment to take place. He's faithful to this loving kindness, these mercies. So in that regard, you look at the verse differently, understanding the historical context of the verse. Another one in 1 Corinthians 10 is another one that we use. I'm just using ones that we kind of use that, you know, we don't always think about what's really there. Um, I'm guilty of it as much as anybody. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. That's what we say, right? The verse continues, But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, 
so that you will be able to endure it. It doesn't mean that we escape the temptation and we don't face temptation. It means that the escape is the ability to endure. And so there's an importance in understanding, one, the context, and two, what the verse is actually saying. Um, understanding these two things gives us a broader picture of the character of God, uh, of our place, and what we are actually to do and what we are actually to focus on. So when the temptation comes, we don't look for a way to um, you know, get out of it. We look, okay, Lord, what are you going to give me right now to endure this temptation, to not give in? It's a different attitude going into it prayerfully. Um, so these are things I wanted to point out why we're going to go through this. Uh, the purpose of this PowerPoint is not really a PowerPoint. Um, we'll see if it works. The purpose of this is just to show the history in a way that's easier for you guys to, to, to see. Um, instead of me trying to just shout out a bunch of dates and times, uh, this will help in an in a order of, of what we're going to talk about right now. So, 538, uh, Cyrus decrees that the Jews may return to Jerusalem. This is in Ezra 1. Uh, Zerubbabel leads a group of exiles to Judah. The temple altar is rebuilt. We see this all happens fairly quickly. When Cyrus gives the order for them to return, they have funds, they have authority, and they have all of the furniture from the uh, temple that are, they're taking with them. There's 50,000 people. We've gone over this. Uh, they get there. They set up the altar. What's interesting is they send for building material. They pay for it. They send for it. And then the work stops. And in Ezra chapter 4, there's this little gap. So in 535 to 520, temple building is stopped. There's this gap between verse 5 and verse 24. And it's this letter that's written by to, to and from this king Artaxerxes. Now Artaxerxes is not the king at that time. So when you read it, you think, okay, a decree was given for them to stop, so they stopped. But when we understand the history of it, that is not what happened. They had every right and every authority to build, and they just stopped. They did face opposition, but I think they felt that it was going to be easy, and since it wasn't easy, they just stopped building, and they started building their own. Haggai comes, you know, 15 years later. And when he comes, he says, you have spent time building your paneled houses. Consider your ways. And what it appears like is maybe they used some of the building material and the funds that were supposed to be for the temple on their own homes. So Haggai comes, and it's like, man, Haggai, what's the deal? Why are you so mean, right? He's just like an old, mean guy, and that's not it. He, he, is, he is frustrated with, with God's people. Uh, the misuse of things uh, that were supposed to be for God. So that's why he comes up so harsh. So they weren't commanded to stop. They just stopped. So that's kind of uh, one interesting note. Okay. Haggai, Zechariah, prophesy. Uh, the temple building resumes in 520, and it's completed in 515. So what's interesting about this, when they... Why, why did God wait so long for Haggai to come and prophesy? Why not prophesy right away? Well, there's another timeline we're going to look at, and this one is the timeline of the kings. Yeah, this is way better that we did it like this, Sam. Yeah. So, timeline of the kings. Here you have Cyrus allows them to return. Cambyses II is his son, and this man Smyrtus, this is an interesting fact in history, they don't know if it was actually his son or if some imposter sorcerer person, Guamata, 
impersonated him and ruled this Persian kingdom for eight months under this guise of being Cyrus's son. So interesting fact in history. Um, what's interesting about this is these three men would have all been in line of Cyrus. So at any point in time, if they had written back to Cyrus and said, you know, you got to make these Jews stop, he would say, look, I issued a decree. It's to be built. There's nothing you can do about it. But he waits until this man Darius becomes king. So all of a sudden, the people of God are in this position where they're going to have to start building. They do not have the funds. They do not have the materials. And they're kind of on shaky authority. They're not really sure if Darius is going to honor this. But the command from God comes out, go up to the mountains, cut down the trees, come back and build the temple. That's the command from God. And they obey. And as they're obeying, this letter is written to Darius. And they're saying, look, the Jews are building. We need to, do we need to tell them to stop? So Darius checks the, the, the library and gets the, the records and everything. They, he sees the decree, and he says, not only shall you not tell them to stop, you give them every authority, and whatever they need, funds, whatever they need, building, whatever they need in sacrifices, you give it to them. So because of their repentance, their obedience to God, God gives provision. So he gives the funds, the materials, and the authority to continue the building process. And he does it in such a way that it would have been, in our eyes, more difficult. Had he done it under earlier kings, it would have been like, okay, well, you know, it's his son, he'll just give it to us. So interesting thing, like I say, as we continue throughout the history, these are things that we notice. So this letter that was written to Artaxerxes, you have this big, long gap between the time the, the building was there all the way until this is the time of Esther. Esther becomes queen. Purim is established, what you read about in, in the book of Esther. After this is during the reign of Xerxes. Then after Xerxes, you have this man, Artaxerxes, becomes king. At some point in time, the people, it appears, try to start building without repentance and without an open door and without provision. And a letter goes out, and we're going to look at that letter in Ezra chapter 4. And it, the decree goes out, stop. Tell them to stop building. So they try to do it outside of this pattern that we've seen, and immediately the work is stopped. What's interesting is that when, the, when we look at the decree, it was given in such a way that the king says, until I say so, no work shall be done. Had that king died before he gave the say-so, I don't know if another Persian king would have been able to reverse that and say, well, now you can rebuild because technically that king was supposed to give the authority. So there would have been, who knows, um, if they would have been able to. So then you have this man, Ezra, which we talked about. He leads the group of exiles back, and he tries to restore the people spiritually. We see them repent. We see them turn towards God, and we see this spiritual revival take place. This time of backsliding has occurred by the time we get to 444 Artaxerxes and Nehemiah. So the walls have been destroyed for about 140 years up to this point. And to give you some perspective, that would put us back in the 1870s. So it's a, it's a long chunk of time that it's been this way, that they've continued to, to be in a place where there's no defense, they are reproached, they're kind of a laughing stock. You know, they, they have a temple, they have a, a city, but there's no protection. They can come and take it whenever. Um, so that's, that's this line of Persian kings uh, where they're at.
So this is when the letter's written, Ezra leads, Nehemiah's there. So just so you get an idea of the history of what we're talking about, it does matter to understand, and, and there is great documentation of this time period because the powers that be at the time, the Persians, the Greeks, they kept pretty good documentation for an ancient people. Um, so it's amazing, like people would say, you know, 100 years ago, well, you know, if only we had something that told us that, uh, you know, this king was really reigning at that time. And then, you know, 50 years later, archaeologists uncover this thing that says, oh, this king gave these decrees and this and that. So uh, archaeology continues to prove these things in the Bible to be correct. And this is a source document that archaeologists use to discover these things. All right, that's it for the PowerPoint. Go ahead and turn to Ezra chapter 4. <clears throat> Ezra chapter 4. So this is the letter that's being written uh, to Artaxerxes, and you, you kind of get a hint of that in verses uh, 4, 5, and 6. It really gives the list of the kings in order so that we understand that this portion from really 7 to 24 is a parenthetical portion. It's not given as a historical flow. This is something that Ezra gives as an example of the opposition that they faced the entire time. The Jews were always facing opposition. So in chapter 4, we're going to pick up in reading in verse 7. It says, In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. Rahim, the commander in Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Rahim, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues, and the judges, and the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations which the great and honorable O-Snapper deported and settled in the city of Samaria and in the rest of the region beyond the river. Now this is the copy of the letter which they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. Now, because we are in the service of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore we have sent and informed the king, so that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers, and you will discover in the record books and learn that that city is a rebellious city and damaging to kings and provinces, and that they have incited revolt within it in past days. Therefore, that city was laid waste. We inform the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls finished as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. So this is the letter they write. This is the opposition. And you read it, and it's like, man, you know, can't let them rebuild. So what's, what's taking place here is they're asking the king to go back and to search your stores and figure out what kind of people these are and understand that they're going to just revolt like they have all these times past. So as this letter goes out, we see that they attempted to start the building project without repenting, without prayer, 
without God's open door, without God's provision. And this is the response from the enemy. The decree from Cyrus gave them the right to rebuild the temple, but it wasn't specific enough to give them the right to rebuild the city. It was just the temple at the time. So that's the political workaround that they had back in those days. Verse 17, Then the king sent an answer to Rehem the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and in the rest of the provinces beyond the river, peace. And now the document which you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me, and search has been made, and it has been discovered that that city has risen up against the kings in past days, that rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it, that mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river, and that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. So now issue a decree to make these men stop work that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehem and Shimshai the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. So this is the response. The king gives this decree, and like I said, in Persian decrees, we see in Daniel, you can't just reverse it, you can't just make it whatever you want. A decree is an important thing. It can't be altered. So he gives in that decree this stop, but he says, until word is given by me to continue. So that's the, the open door. So go ahead and turn to Nehemiah, just a couple pages over. We're going to read the first 11 verses. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Chislev, in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your, ear, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though those of you have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. Uh, interesting thing about Nehemiah, um, 
we know that he was cupbearer to the king, and those of us that have studied understand that it was a very prominent position. It was probably the highest position that he could have ever uh, achieved um, in the Persian kingdom. Uh, he would have had direct access to the king, and he would have been uh, the go-between anything that would have come for the king to eat, he would have partaken of to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. So he would have a close relationship with the king. He would be a man that was trusted, that was respected, um, that had some uh, authority in that regard. So what happens is this uh, Nehemiah, one of his brothers or brethren, come and they tell him, and it gives us a record of the time, in the 20th year, in the month Chislev. Now, uh, that's kind of like a November, December time period for us, so we just understand, again, the timeline of this whole thing. Um, so the, the word comes to him, and the first thing that he asked them, or one of the things that he asked his brethren is, how are things with the people? Now, this man serves in the palace, in the most dominant power in the world, um, amazing access that few people would ever have, and he wants to know about the remnant in Jerusalem in a city that's been still in rubble and confusion. He wants to know how God's people are doing. Uh, this is his attitude. Uh, one of the things we take away from that is during our week, when the things that we're going through, do we have an attitude that's just concerned about what we're facing, or is our attitude one that's concerned about God's people? Um, this man who would have had the most important position of any Jew, uh, would have had access to the, the greatest uh, power than any Jew, was concerned about what was going on in Jerusalem. It says, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Uh, th this is the sad state of affairs. It's been this way for a very long time. Like I said, 140 years since the destruction of Jerusalem. And the people are upset. But a decree has been given. They, they can't rebuild. And so they're kind of stuck in this reproach. They're stuck in this distress. Verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So circumstances come, and we first see Nehemiah, he prays. And we're going to see this begins this process that God has, going, has done throughout history that he begins right now with Nehemiah. Repentance, prayer, and then we're going to see God's open door, and we're going to see God's provision. So if you're doing something in life right now and you're trying to find a way to achieve God's blessings without repentance, we can tell you it won't happen. It won't happen. That is not how God does things. The first thing we must do when we recognize that we're in a, in a relationship that's been harmed with God because of our sin, the first thing we must do is repent and we must seek God in prayer. This is what Nehemiah does. So he begins this praying and fasting. Uh, we were talking about fasting last week on, on prayer meeting, Wednesday night. So this is this, is this idea. Um, we talked about fasting being a, a means to draw near unto God, uh, a means of putting outside distractions and realizing that moment that hunger hits you, the whole purpose behind it, seeking God, seeking God, seeking God. This is a desire for people to know God's will and to, to seek God without the distraction of other things that would get in the way. So this is what he does. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. He tells God how great he is. Uh, we think of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be 
your name. This idea of recognizing the great power of God. Nehemiah is going to get to a point in his, in his prayer where he's going to ask God for something. And in doing so, sometimes it seems like an insurmountable task that we're asking of God. But when we approach God and we understand how great, how awesome, how big God is, all of a sudden what we're asking him seems like this teeny little thing. This is something that's easy for God. And then it becomes easy to ask. Um, you know, Noah at night, you know, kids, they get in bed and everything's all done. And then he'll say, you know, Dad, can, can I have some water? And it's like a, this big request, Dad, Dad. Uh huh. Can I have some water? No, son, go to bed. You know, knock it off. You know, it's easy for me to go and to get the water and to bring it back for him to have a little bit of water and then go to bed. But in his mind, there's this idea. Sometimes we approach God that way. Um, God, you know, if it's if it's convenient for you, if it if it wouldn't be too hard, could you just do this this thing? I know it's a big thing. Nothing is too big for God. Nothing is big for God. He can do anything. But we have this idea of, of little faith where we're kind of afraid to ask of these things. We see that every time the children of Israel had kind of backslidden, God brings somebody from the outside in. So you have Ezra comes back to restore the people spiritually. And now we're going to have Nehemiah come to, re, to rebuild the walls in the city. And he brings them from the outside. It's interesting that it doesn't happen from within. It happens from somebody that has this uh, great desire to be there, but isn't there for whatever reason. He says, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. He says, we didn't do anything right. We didn't keep the commandments. We didn't keep the statutes. We didn't keep the ordinances. We didn't do anything that you asked us to do. And there's this, this turn of repentance that's beginning here. First, you go to admit how far you have gone from the presence of God, how far away your sin has led you from having this close relationship with God. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. We wander away. So in this point, what's interesting, when you go back and you figure out why the children of Israel were, were uh, given under the captivity, they were supposed to have a Sabbath year. So in the children of Israel and the ordinances and statutes that were given, they were to work the land for six years to farm and to, to till it. And then the seventh year, they were supposed to let it rest. And God said, I will provide everything you need in that sixth year that you will not have to work in this seventh year. This was a promise from God. They didn't do that at all. So for 490 years, they just kept working that seventh year, working that seventh year. And in Second Chronicles, we see God says, well, then you owe me 70 years. That's why the captivity is 70 years long. Um, so so this is the, all these things, like I say, as we understand what's going on, God does things with such precision. It, it's undeniable um, that he is behind all of this. Even when Babylon is, is, is ruling and in authority, you think, okay, how, how are the people going to be released in just a few years? And Babylon is conquered in a day. 
and you're like, you know, blown away by the man that, that God had predicted would come 140 years before by name. Just to, just to like sprinkle a little bit on that for you. So as we continue to see these things, this leads us to praise God. Um, one of the things that's interesting, he says, we didn't do anything right. And then he refers back to the word of God. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. He goes back to God's word and he claims a promise. I understand that we have sinned. I understand that we are guilty, that you were right, that you did exactly what you said you were going to do, that you were faithful to your word. And I ask you to remember your word at this point in time as I'm praying to you that if we repent and we return to you and we agree to do things as you have said, you will do this. So this is the beginning. Prayer, repentance, and we're going to see what takes place. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. This man being the king, Artaxerxes. And this note is thrown in, now I was the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah was so motivated in prayer because he realized that he was in a position to actually have an audience with the king. So Nehemiah understands what's going on. He understands the position that he's in and he prays to that effect. Use me in this way. Now we all do different things. We all have different jobs. Uh, we all have different uh, activities. We all have different things that we're responsible for. But we pray in such a way that God use me here where I am. I'm in a specific place with a specific group of people. Your friends are not my friends. My coworkers are not your coworkers. God has placed me in a sphere that he has not placed you. He's placed you in a sphere that he has not placed me. You have a responsibility to pray and to act and to work according to that sphere as I do. Nehemiah was so burdened in this prayer because he realized that he was in a position where God could really use him. And he doesn't just work around God and step in the way. He waits. And we're going to see how long he waits in a minute here. And that's what we want to kind of get as this historical context unfolds. What are we doing in our own life? Are we apathetic? Are we working without praying? Are we working without repenting? Are we repenting and not working? There's so many things that are going on where it's like this, this is the things that need to take place. One of the things that you may notice as an assembly is one thing, as an individual is another. So and as an individual, you're responsible. Like you're, you're it. You're responsible. You know, you're, the, you're the one. So you have to do it individually. But corporately, as we look at us as a whole, what would we say? Are we a people of prayer? Are we a people of work? We have a prayer meeting. We have a lot of activities as well. We have really one, one and a half prayer meetings throughout the week, kind of. We got something every night. We have a, a Monday night 
uh, youth study, we have brigades, TNT, Discovery Time, we have Awana, we have uh, Saturday night outreach, we have the ladies Bible study, we have a ladies missionary meeting. Um, there's a lot of work going on here, right? Work is not bad. Work is a good thing. We're going to see these people rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem in 52 days. Work is great. I love working. But there's a need for prayer. If we think we're going to work without God's provision, without God's open door, we're going to be stopped. It's all going to be for naught. This, this isn't, in the end, we get glory from these things, not the person of God. As God works these things in a miraculous way, it leads us to praise him. It leads us to work harder for him. Um, something to take home individually, corporately. Are we following these principles? Is there need of repentance? Is there need of prayer? Is there need of work? We could, any one of us could be along this line on the spectrum. And we see when those things are, when we commit ourselves to doing it as God has provided in his word, we see God is faithful to bless and bless beyond anything we could have asked for. And we want to, we want to lay hold of that. So, he puts in this thing, I'm cupbearer to the king. In verse 1 of chapter 2, Now it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. And we'll stop there. So we, we remember he started praying and fasting in the month um, Chislev, November, December. And it, now it gives us a count in the month Nisan, uh, March, April. So four to five months prayer, fasting, supplication before God has been taking place. Um, I don't know about you all, but I struggle spiritually. Praying is the hardest thing that I do. It's hard to pray. It's hard to focus. It's hard to, to find time. And when you do focus and you do find time, it's like, what do I pray for? And all of a sudden you start praying and then I'm, I'm doing bids in my mind for the next week's work. And, and I get focused on something and the babies come and you, know, you, gotta, you gotta do this and you gotta do that. Praying is a hard thing. This man, you know, in, in, in his position, prayed for four months just for an opportunity, just for confessing sin, stating the wrongs that they've done, stating God's word, God's promises, continually seeking God in this. 
it burdened him so much. He's in a palace under the greatest king on the earth at the time. What would he care? He's not in Jerusalem. He doesn't have to look at it every day. It affects him really in no way whatsoever on his daily basis. But he is so burdened for the name of God that it is a reproach among the people. The church today, in some places, is a laughing stock in the world. People find out you believe the Bible, and it's like a joke to them. This is the reproach that we're in. You tell people that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you believe what the Bible says, and they just treat you differently. Are we so burdened that the name of God is being trampled upon? That the name of Jesus Christ is being belittled to such a thing that he was just a teacher? This should cause us to weep and to mourn and to fast and to pray and to seek God's face that we would rebuild in a miraculous way. This is what Nehemiah does. It's a lesson to us all. The, the things I love most about Nehemiah and Ezra is that they weren't, they were just regular people. It wasn't their lineage. It wasn't that they prophets and got direct word from God. They weren't, you know, the high priest at the time. These were just people that were burdened, that were willing to pray on behalf of themselves and the people. So the king said to me, he says, I had not been sad in his presence. The reason why he's not sad in his presence is because kings had a habit of killing people that were sad in their presence. They didn't like sad people in the throne room. Uh, so the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. So the king knows Nehemiah well enough to understand that he's not sick. This, this man is just sad. Um, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. Um, and remember, he's talking to the guy that gave the command to make the work stop. So this could have gone either way in Nehemiah's mind, right? So he took a chance here. He was afraid, but he took the chance. King said to me, what would you request? Whew. Okay, Ugh. what would you request? Now it's the hard part. Now it's like we, we've, I've been praying and fasting. I've been looking for an open door. All of a sudden, you're in the presence of the king. It's come up. You've said your problem. And he says, okay, what do you want? How many of us would be like, uh, 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 I don't know. He goes, I prayed to the God of heaven. This is a quick, and this is the idea that we always talk about, being in constant communion with God. Even when you're working, when you're hanging out, when you're talking with friends, when something comes up, Having the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, having the Holy Spirit indwell you, gives you like this access that Jesus is always by your side. He is the, the best friend that never leaves you nor forsakes you. And, you know, you have these moments in life, you know, Kathy has them at work, where something will happen, and she'll be like, oh, I can't wait to tell Justin what happened. That should be that way with the Lord. We can't wait to, to talk to the Lord about this. We can't wait to bring this up. So here he is in front of the king, and he's interceding be to the king of heaven. Right? So this king, eh, not that big a deal. God of heaven. So he says, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild. 
Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. Now we understand that time to be 12 years. Um, you know, go to your employer and say, hey, can I have 12 years off and then come right back? And, uh, you know, by the way, can you send me on a, a vacation, you know, where uh, we can uh, get this building project done? So this is what Nehemiah asked. One of the things that it, we see with Nehemiah is he didn't just pray that he would give a decree to rebuild. He didn't just pray to the fact that give a decree and have the funds sent, give a decree, have the funds and, and the materials sent. He said, send me. I want to go back. I want to be a part of the building project. Remember, he's in the palace, and he's going to leave and go back to a place that's desolate. It's going to be hard. It's going to be frustrating. Um, he's going to be the new guy on the block, but he wants to go back, and he wants to be a part of this. Um, it's the same attitude we should have. Sometimes it's like, okay, Lord, uh, you just you bless them over there. You just you go and you bless them. And it's like you don't really want to be involved other than you know a long shot prayer. Um, we, need, we need to get involved with these things with one another. Uh, so this is what Nehemiah asks. A letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give the, the timber to make beams for the gates of the fort. Oh, let's see. Uh, he says in verse 7, let the king, if it please the king, let the letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of God was on me. Nehemiah has been praying this for four months. There's the open door. He asked for the provision, and there's God's provision. It's all right there. But it started first with repentance and prayer. If you're not willing to labor the time that's necessary in repentance and prayer, don't expect God's open door and God's provision, because it's not how it works. And that's the one thing we see throughout the history of the people. And if we're honest with our own lives, we see that in our own lives. When we all got saved, there was a point where God brought us to this point of repentance where we understood what we were doing was wrong, what we were doing was deserving of hell forever, and we had completely violated everything God had written in the scriptures against us. And where we knew it to be true. And when we saw the promise, as Nehemiah saw the promise, as we saw the promise, that as Jesus Christ died for us, he would give us eternal life by placing our faith and trust in him that that shedding of blood would take away sin forever. And when we repented, we said, I understand that I've been all of these wicked things. I have. I, did, I, I, I broke them all. I did it all. But Lord, your word says this. Remember this in your word? That's what I'm going to place my trust in, this promise, that Jesus Christ died for me and is risen for me and that I will have everlasting life. Not because of anything I did. All I did was add the wickedness. And Jesus gives all the blessings. It's the same aspect. And as we continue through our lives, any blessing that comes from God comes in that way as we've wandered away from him. So he asked for uh, rebuild the temple, rebuild uh, the temple wall, the city wall, and to build my house. He says, you know, can I get timber to build my house when I'm there? He needs a place to live, right? So he asked for that as well. Uh, these are the things that we take away. And as we look at the history of the people, I hope it makes sense in our own lives no work of God is ever done without repentance and prayer, God's open door, and God's provision. Where are we at in this spectrum? Individually, corporately. This is a lesson to us all, and we thank guys like Nehemiah that were willing to pray and fast for the time they did that God's work would begin again. Let's go ahead and close in prayer.
Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee uh, for Your Word. We do thank Thee for Your your mercies, your loving kindness. Uh, they are new every morning. We thank you for the great grace that is given to us in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we admit to you our sins. We, we confess to you that, that we have gone astray. We confess to you that, that we have moved in such a way that we have relied upon ourselves. And Father, we know that in your word that if we repent and turn towards you, that you will give us showers of blessings. And we do pray for these things. Father, we do pray for... Um, relationships to be healed. We do pray for divisions to be brought back and there to be unity in the spirit, unity in mind, and unity in the person of Christ. And Father, we do just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.